Hello, my name is Cassie Prolongo, and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. And today I'm interviewing Chris Potter. Chris is a research scientist, and he works in the biospheric science branch uh, in earth science at the NASA Ames Research Center. Um, so Chris, I thought we could start out actually talking about biospheric science. Um, what is biospheric science and what kind of research do you conduct that's actually within this area? Yeah, that's a um, fancy word, I guess you could say biospheric for um, studies of the living earth system, mm. um, which includes you know all the plants on the land and in the ocean, the phytoplankton and and all the, all the you know living animals um, that depend on the plants, and of course the microbes you know in the soil and the in the sediments and and microscopic organisms in in the in water. So we those in in our branch we call it our group of about thirty or so people try to study these changes and patterns in um, in the land systems ecosystems where these these um plants and animals you know are, are growing on earth uniquely you know we think in in the solar system maybe in the galaxy who knows um but um and we do it mainly by using uh what's called remote sensing data remote sensing from satellites that orbit the earth um and go over every day or every every few days and then, um, and then we also try to conduct studies on on the ground or in the on the boats in the water, um, to um, to what we call validate or ground truth what we're seeing from the satellites, so that we understand very well, very accurately what what's being seen from space or or aircraft, um, you know, imaging. So that's our main job, and and we're we do things like. Uh, really good examples are track the uh, the damage that occurs from forest fires. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very timely issue, or any other wildfires you know it, around the world. We tend to focus here at NASA Ames on California or the Western U.S. and Alaska as our regional uh, work goes, and our partners and other federal agencies um, and state agencies we work with. Um, we look at air pollution impacts you know, over, over the areas because we can see our pollution from space, both greenhouse gases and pollutants that, you know, cause health problems if um, when they're closer to the ground. We look at uh, heating of the land surface. Um, we look at loss of vegetation from other causes like, you know, human clearing of and replanting of, of the earth. So those are, those are kind of our main goals is to look at global change from satellites of the parts of the earth that are the living breathing components so as you as a earth scientist you're looking at the earth as sort of a holistic entity it sounds like are you you mentioned ground truth too but are you primarily looking at your data through satellites and also these ground truths so both from the uh, bottom up and from the top down yes yes i am in particular doing depending mainly on satellites that that can that can tell us what's going on everywhere on Earth practically. Um, there are several new satellites that have been launched to look at uh, the, the, the height of forests around the world, um, 
to look at the drought stress that's going on in different areas because drought is a big problem to manage everywhere and could get worse with with warming trends and uh, and then we depend on the the very uh, well proven uh, long time series from uh, the Landsat satellites. Um, Landsat was first launched in 1970s and has been collecting data everywhere uh, for the last 40 years and so it provides us with a very long time series to look at, at change um, and the what we when we look at it we're looking at pixels in the images you know the, the, the individual pieces of each image those in a Landsat image are about the size of an average tennis court so we can see a lot of detail just from that image and uh, imagery and we can get it just about everywhere where there aren't clouds because <laughs> that gets in the way of course um, every couple weeks so it's a really valuable long-term data set that we use to look at change, to monitor change, to look at disasters, to look at recovery from disasters, um, whether they be hurricanes or fires or um, other, other um, you know, major issues that are on the front pages now. So what is some of the published research um, that you've actually done and conducted with Landsat or with GOES, as you've mentioned? Yeah. So we use, we use Landsat. Um, and have used it to publish lots of studies on um, uh, what we call land cover change and land use change. Um, uh, one area that we published on a lot lately is in, in Alaska, where we have a major mm -hmm. NASA field campaign and remote sensing campaign going on. There we're looking at changes in the vegetation um, that are both uh, look like the certain areas are, uh, are becoming greener. Um, you know, there's more vegetation filling in areas that were more barren before, before climate change started really picking up there. There are other areas that are called, that we call, that are browning or not getting less, less green for one reason or another. That could be because excuse me, permafrost is thawing, the ice under the soil is thawing, and it's becoming wet and, and waterlogged, and, but it's also allowing a new set of uh, a new community of vegetation to come in that, that looks different to the satellite, so it sees it as different. So we can mm -hmm. monitor all those things. We published numerous papers in Alaska over the last few years to look at this uh, greening and browning trends and the and what fires are doing if fire burned areas are recovering the way they always have relatively rapidly and filling in again or whether the vegetation in those areas is changing um, in a way that we don't understand, you know, can't really um, uh, explained so far. That's where ground truth studies come in to go out there, out there and actually look at it. But going back in time, you know, we, uh, my group uh, that I was leading back in the early 1990s published the first paper that looked at the, what we called the breathing earth at that time. It was a oh, global wow. study. It was a study of the entire globe using the first satellite images that we had, anyone had ever produced, you know, wall-to-wall -wall clear images of the Earth's uh, vegetation cover, green cover, and growth over the year. And so we put that into a computer model and, and used that imagery to uh, what we call, you know, drive the computer model or um, uh, give it the inputs it needed to uh, simulate both the, the uptake of carbon by the plants by photosynthesis and then the loss of carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere through microbial uh, decay of, of the dead material. And we published what we called the first breathing earth paper ever um, 
uh, and led by NASA Ames scientists, along with uh, scientists from uh, Stanford. And, um, and so we, it was a joint paper, and it's been cited thousands of times now in the literature. It's become a real classic study about how we could use the imagery to actually look at where the Earth is, is breathing, you'd say, taking in more carbon dioxide than losing or losing more than it's taking up. It's a nice visual, uh, it's a descriptive couple of words, and it's a nice visual, and I can see how that could resonate, um, and maybe even, was it picked up by policymakers, or did it, did it, how did yes. it actually go and disseminate? When, when we first um, uh, published the paper, um, NASA did a press release on it, and uh, I was interviewed on CNN. Um, wow as a feature story um, uh, about this new development. It was the only time I've ever been on TV, I think, interviewed. And so I got my f ten, five minutes of fame then. And the yes was picked up, you know, in press releases and has been used by thousands of researchers around the world, replicated and used to, to do these global carbon cycle studies um, uh, to look at how, what the Earth's um, biosphere or living component, how it's um, responding and controlling what the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. Um, we can have an, it does have an impact on how much uh, carbon stays in the atmosphere, but of course, how much is ultimately there depends on the fossil fuel sources and, and burning of fossil fuels by humans. And, and so despite all that, we can still see that, that, that the biosphere is hanging in there and doing, doing what it's always done, which is taking up a lot of the carbon and storing it in different places like soils in the ocean. That's great. That's, all, that's such a cool thing. I'm glad that it got the recognition it clearly deserves. I um, mm -hmm. kind of want to shift gears a little bit, but you are an earth scientist. Um, what did you study at university and how did that actually lead you to working for NASA? Did you envision yourself being a NASA scientist? <laughs> <laughs> um, not I wouldn't say I envisioned myself being a NASA scientist when I was in grad school. Um, I, I, um, all my degrees are in biology, you know, my academic degrees, biology, ecology, and evolutionary uh, studies, evolution and biology. Um, but as it turns out, you know, there are a lot of biologists that work for NASA. It's not a, it's not a bad fit or place to look for a job. And so um, at the time when I came out of graduate school, and um, after I spent uh, two years doing um, a, uh, a fellowship study in Washington, D.C., working with uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, traveling all over the world um, to look at agricultural projects, forestry projects that were um, being funded, and we had to evaluate them, how they were going in, in developing countries around the world. But I thought, you know, I can do this global work pretty pretty well now because I've seen a lot of different places I've, I've you know gone flew around the world a few times and and gone out into the into remote places to so I got a pretty good feeling and about that and so there was a position here at NASA Ames um, that opened up for a postdoctoral um, research position and I applied and so it was to develop this this breathing earth model at the time mm -hmm. so it was a good fit I had done a lot of also at the time what we called computer science in, mm -hmm. in graduate school. We would program, you know, using uh, ancient sort of codes and, and do simulation models of, of biological systems. And that, that was what they needed was to 
And then, you know, at Ames was the perfect place to do it because we had huge computers mm. and still do um, for supercomputing, we called it. And, you know, now high performance computing. And so we could develop any algorithm we wanted and find enough computing horsepower to, to run them, you know, to do global models. So it was a real good fit. Um, what mentors uh, or how have mentors really inspired you or helped you along your journey? Um, and how did you really discover that you wanted to be a scientist? Yeah, I mean, I think from, you know, typically for most um, young people who decide they want to go into science at, at some point, either in high school or, you know, in your freshman or sophomore year in college, a professor comes along and really, really gets you excited about, about, uh, about the, what, the subject matter. And I had one in high school who really, who took us on field trips. We, we drove across the country. I grew up in Michigan. One summer we all piled in a van, a few of him and his favorite students. And we went out to Wyoming and just camped for a couple of weeks and hiked and climbed mountains and he kind of introduced me to the wild west, you know, and ever I've been hooked ever since on, on the grandeur of the West and California and everything there is out here. So that got me hooked on coming to this part of the world and being a scientist. But then, you know, as I went along in graduate school, I had some, some just uh, terrific, amazing, inspirational graduate professors who, um, who were, you know, when you spend that much time with guys like that, they almost become like a second parent to you. And so um, they did and, and um, it gave me the confidence, you know, to, to get a, to get a doctorate degree and then try to be a researcher, you know, an independent um, researcher. And so um, those were the, the real mentors I had. I've had a few, couple more, you know, at NASA Ames um, who, who, basically told me how to survive as a government employee, you know, <laughs> that's a different kind of mentoring to, uh, to use, you know, all the resources the government has and, but still abide by all the policies and regulations. And, and, um, but, you know, NASA has so many resources. We've seen them change so much over the years at Ames and a few key people you know, who are, who are managers really, um, helped me survive, those years because a lot of people have retired, you know, instead of trying to, trying to adapt to the changing environment here. Yeah. So what would you, how would you like to advise maybe some new hires or early career researchers who are considering a career in STEM, maybe at NASA or in industry or, you know, academia, what, what kind of advice would you like to explain to them? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, I think it, it, having, you know, the, uh, the really well-grounded undergraduate education, you know, four-year college education in, um, to work for NASA, you know, you, you should never shy away from a physics class <laughs> and get yourself prepared. I did. I never took physics and, um, I took all biology and chemistry and it was great, but to work at a place like NASA, you, um, everyone talks in terms of physics and computer science. And so um, having, uh, being functional in both of those, besides, you know, whatever other discipline you're interested in, whether it's aeronautics or, um, or um, life beyond Earth or space, you know, exploration or um, uh, planetary science, 
um, you've got to have, you got to be able to uh, be uh, versed in, in computer science and programming. And um, because eventually someone will show you their computer code and you'll need to understand what it, what it means. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, everything about remote sensing, you know, is really based in physics. And so um, the physical world, the, uh, whether it's um, radar studies or what we call LIDAR studies or optical studies are all, all about the physics of the electromagnetic spectrum. So I had to learn all that when I came here. Would have been smart to learn it before I came here. <laughs> but you learned on the fly, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. But, you know, there, there are going to be um, many, many good jobs doing this kind of work. I would, I would say don't um, look at the r most recent, you know, year here and think that this is how employment and climate change, earth science, environmental science is going to, you know, go in the way of everything else. This is the century of climate change and climate change um, adaptation and hopefully, you know, mitigation, turning it around the other way. And we're going to need the brightest minds we can um, staying with the problem and providing the good data, the good science, because someday our government will will pay attention to that. Have, <laughs> they need to have faith that our government will pay attention to the data um, uh, as we go forward. So speaking of good data and good science, um, you are one of several NASA scientists who are chosen to be part of this um, larger collective project. Um, which is called the Rapid Response and Novel Research in Earth Science. And that's basically exploring connections between the environment and right now with COVID. So I mm -hmm. thought I thought to ask maybe if you could discuss um, what your project is and how this ties into um, the current pandemic. I know this is ongoing, um, but anything that's mm -hmm. public knowledge currently, uh, what your sure. project is and how it, how it ties in. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so I guess we need to uh, go back to, um, say, February 2020, when um, it became apparent that there was this um, coronavirus um, um, now <clears throat> uh, showing up in U.S. cities. And, um, and California, of course, um, uh, was one of the early places where there were a lot of cases in the Bay Area in particular. Um, and so... Um, we could see that um, that a rapid response would be um, project would be um, appropriate to uh, look at how the coronavirus and uh, particularly what what we did here in the Bay Area and in California to try to um, you know flatten the curve for the for the virus infections and and mortality and all is that there was a shutdown of uh, shelter in place they called it. Um, in early March um, by the governor and uh, everyone was asked to stay at home and um, and <clears throat> remarkably we did we, we I think both out of fear and um, an obligation uh, people just stopped going out they stopped driving their cars they stopped uh, going to restaurants. They had to because restaurants and the movie theaters were all shutting down. They couldn't go get their hair done, couldn't go, whatever. And so everybody stayed home. And out on the street, when you walked around, even in my little town, it was like a ghost town. There was just nobody out there 
and air and people also noticed right away the air mm -hmm. was very clear within yeah. a week or so of the shutdown by late march uh, we had blue beautiful blue skies that we normally don't have that time of year you could you couldn't if you lived here for a while you noticed it immediately and you notice that if you did get in your car, there was nobody driving around and nobody in the parking lots um, if you got went around. So, uh, you know, that's when we got to, I began to ask myself, how has this change, which we've never seen before in the Bay Area ever, that, you know, that in the middle of the day, there was no traffic or in the morning, there was no traffic. There was nobody in these parking lots. There's no one going to school, um, filling up all the, you know, university parking lots around. And so... Asked, we asked ourselves, what is, what is that doing to the environment? You know, we've got clear skies, hardly any pollution in the air, and we've got, um, and we've got nobody driving around. And so we, we proposed to NASA to look at the effects of this, um, of the shutdown or the shelter in place and the lack of traffic and air pollution on what's happening to the biosphere, but our local biosphere in the Bay Area, that is, um, and and the most obvious thing to me was is it getting hotter this time of year than normal or is it getting cooler because we have clearer skies no pollution and less traffic because all those things together contribute to our warming effect locally and you know there's something called the urban heat effect um, of all the the large surfaces around here that are that are asphalt or cement they heat up more they radiate heat more and landsat satellite can see that from space it tracks that, and Landsat was one of the only, for a long time, it was the only sensor uh, that you could get a thermal picture of the Earth, you know, how hot was the Earth on, on the land surface um, every week at, or so at a, at a very, um, you know, high resolution. So you could see individual parking lots, you could see individual buildings, um, rooftops, and, and even freeway corridors, you know. And so our project was accepted. Um, to uh, analyze all that uh, satellite data for uh, March, April, May, June, and even July of 2000, compare it to the years previous to that. Uh, we were going back to 2017 to compare three previous years and, and determine, did, did we have a change in the environment um, that would, could most probably or certainly be attributed to staying at home and not driving around? And... So um, it was accepted, and we started doing the analysis um, over <clears throat> over the summer. And we do have are starting to get preliminary results that show that there is a big, there was a big difference in 2020, especially during March and April and some part of part of May. And um, uh, so it, we are going to be able to report that that the, the shutdown changed our our natural environment or you know urban environment as well. Um, and, and surprisingly, our preliminary conclusion is that it got cooler across the, across the urban areas during 2020 compared to the previous years. The land surface cooled down somewhat. And um, I can go into the reason why we think that is, but that's what the preliminary data shows. And it looks like it's very, very uh, different in 2020. So what could that, what could that mean then if or what sort of things, how would, what would you want to show if there was a change? Was this something that could inform further environmental measures or, or what sort of like the bigger picture with it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the bigger picture is that, you know, um, we, we have a problem in California uh, with heat waves, a big problem. 
um, they're becoming very, very frequent and extreme. And, um, and uh, you know, sooner or later, they're going, uh, it's going to um, result in some major hardships for people, you know, with consecutive days of heat. And it, it becomes unbearable after a while. Well, this period during uh, the, the uh, March, April, and May of 2020 showed us that if we could clean up our atmosphere, in the Bay Area and make it like it was during the shutdown through other measures, you know, not, not just all staying at home, but, but actually having clean vehicles, um, less driving, more mass transit. If we invested all those in the future, we could really, really decrease the effect of, the, of, these, of these, you know, naturally occurring, well, they're sort of natural because they're probably related to climate change and greenhouse gases, but that alone can really cool down your your city if you can eliminate much of the smog in the air. You know, mm -hmm. we call it smog. Uh, they call it uh, spare the air days here in the Bay Area when they declare one. It's because there's so much smog getting trapped over the South Valley here, Silicon Valley, that uh, mainly, and some parts of the East Bay, that air quality is terrible. You don't want to breathe it. There's smoke in the air from fires. <laughs> um, there's ozone in the air from cars. It's unhealthy. And it heats up the environment much more than need be. So yeah. it's an, it was a natural, well, it was unnatural to stay home the way it is, you know, or un, <laughs> uncharacteristic, but it provided, you know, a, a window into what it would be like if we could somehow um, reduce our uh, air pollution by 50% or more, which is what we saw, what we see, you know, from the air quality records. Yeah, um, that actually leads me into another question that I was thinking of asking you. Um, what, what, what would be like maybe a couple of key takeaways that you'd really want to convey to the public um, about your science and what you're studying, um, these thermal heat fluxes, as you mentioned? I guess that can really, I mean, you sort of already talked about this, but can really inform us about our climate and its, its impact. I mean, I guess the human health, I, you've already talked about the smog affecting, but is there anything else that you want to mention about that too? Um, well, you know, we've, we're, we're looking at um, nighttime temperatures that um, are, are actually the most extreme you know, part of the whole issue. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, this heating up issue over, over California, whether you're in an urban area or not. It's, it's from probably climate change effects. And since the mid-1990s, um, what's been happening is that the, um, the nighttime is not cooling off at all. And, um, and uh, you know, back in uh, late August, I'm sure you remember there was a, a night when we had um, very, very usual, unusual, and maybe unprecedented lightning storms that occurred on the warmest night ever recorded in California. Yeah. And so I hope this isn't a preview of what's going to happen more frequently because that, that basically set the whole state on fire and um, with these lightning that, that I'd never seen anything like it since I moved here 30 years ago. And most people say the same thing, no matter how long they've lived here. So if there was ever an, a reason for um, taking action on global climate change to, to, you know, if you ever needed a reason or um, a spectacular um, event 
to focus on um, that for California, that should be it, you know, for, for the Western United States, that night should be it, the pictures of it, um, because it was so hot and so stormy, we had this dry lightning. And, um, uh, so it's a call to action, you know, again, um, we're seeing hurricanes in the Gulf more than ever, you know, more than we've seen in a long, long time, one after another pounding the Gulf coast. Um, that's, that's their version of, a you know, if they needed a wake up call, they, they, they didn't because that's been happening, you know, for the last 20 years there off and on. So, um, uh, let's hope this isn't a preview of what we're going to see every year, um, with this dry lightning, but it fits the trend and we, and there's no time to wait at this point. Um, we've got to do something to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions because that's probably a large part of why we're seeing these winds dri driving fires and lightning lighting up fires um, thousands at a time and we can't handle that the firefighters nobody can handle that yeah i can't help but go back to your original thing with you're talking about breathing earth um it's a nice visual um and action has to be taken basically i think you you yeah. summed it up extremely well yeah, I mean, with this fire event, you, I'm sure you know that we managed to choke the whole earth yeah. back. Yeah, I mean, we these fires produced enough um, soot and dust and, and pollutants in the upper atmosphere that everybody on the planet got a good, good breath of it. Mm -hmm. So we basically choked breathing earth um, with these fires in California because they were so explosive and so uh, they burned so hot. So if you ever had a doubt that what people can do, you know, and what Mother Nature can do to um, to suddenly give you a, a, a bad breath of <laughs> of air. Um, we've seen it. Fire. We're having global impacts. Just in California, we're having global impacts. Fire doesn't they're not have good. a border. Fire or smoke, rather, doesn't have a border. I mean, that's, that's no. one of the things. Um, it doesn't. Neither do greenhouse gases. Right. You know. Exactly. So we're, we're getting close to the end, running out of time. Um, I'm really appreciative of you talking about your research and the importance of your research, especially right now. Um, it's just so sure. critical and important to hear about all the things and to hear about it truthfully and honestly. Um, I did wanna quickly touch on just a couple of other things. Um, you mentioned before about um, when you were going through and deciding, you know, uh, I guess if you wanted to do this, going through and the affinity for field work and going out. So, do you get to do any field work within your own your own um, research currently, or behind? Mm -hmm. Normally, I do. Oh, okay, good. I was going to ask about that because <laughs> there is a visualization of scientists get to just be in a lab, or they're they're plugging away with software. But what kind of field work do you get to actually work on? Yeah, so we've done a lot of, of work in places like Alaska recently, where we go up and get a chance to go out and visit the field sites, look at look at sites that are um, where we think the remote sensing is telling us something very important. Uh, we go to and collaborate with others who are putting out instruments in the field and making measurements so that we can compare them to the satellite data um, um, scientifically and over the right spatial, you know, extents and scales. So that's the best part of the job, in my opinion, is when we get to go out in the field. I, we've had projects recently in the Mojave Desert to look at um, how the uh, installation of solar renewable 
um, um, uh, energy facilities are changing the climate of the desert. Um, and I got, I go get to go down to those field sites, um, every year, uh, maybe a couple times and, and do again, ground truthing, meeting with people who really know the area. I guess leads me into my last, last question very nicely. Um, sort of, I just wanted to ask what the best part of being a scientist is for you, or if there was anything that uh, really surprised you that you weren't expecting, um, when you decided to become a scientist? Um, I think, yeah, the best part was kind of what is related to what we talked about earlier, um, was, uh, I've been able to, you know, visit so many fascinating places around the world, um, uh, and really know a lot about them before I went there because I could see it from, you know, from space and to go out on the ground and, and see what's actually happening is just, it's, it's such a, it's such a thrilling, uh, day when you, when you, when you get to go out there and you, and really get to see what you've been looking at, you know, um, on the ground and see if it's, if it's what you thought it was. That's a big thrill. And then talking with people who are living, trying to live in these areas and make a living and, and survive some of the, you know, the big events that are happening. Um, it's just so inspiring to, to see their perseverance and their courage, you know, in the face of disasters and hardships and even climate change slowly um, changing their world, you know. So um, that's the upside uh, is, to, is to see how, you know, people are so uh, strong and resilient in the face of these kind of changes. Great. Well, I can't thank you again for this amazing interview with all of the different research that you're working on, important research that you're working on, especially right now. (laughs) We we definitely, we definitely try and timing is everything. You know, you got to be right there when, when things are happening and you got to have all your resources ready to throw at it. And luckily we have been pretty good at that. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you again, and thank you, and I can't wait to talk and learn more about the research that you're going to be working on. Yeah, stay tuned. We're going to come out with a lot of new results soon. Sweet. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Stay well. You too. Bye now.